Welcome to The God Solution, where we discuss answers to humanity's questions about God and God's answers for humanity's questions. I'm Nate Herbst, and I'm excited that you're tuned in this morning. Well, today I thought we would discuss the logical arguments for God's existence. Of course, we can't discuss all of them. We'll discuss a few of them. And if you've been listening to the show, you remember that a couple weeks ago we talked about atheism and some of the problems of atheism. And then last week we talked about experiential evidence for God's existence. Throughout the past year and a half, we've talked about many different evidences for God's existence and problems with atheism and so forth. But I've never gone into the various logical arguments for God's existence. We discussed these some on the Atheism Show two weeks ago, very briefly. I want to share more about them today, but of course, today is also going to be a fairly brief discussion on this topic. I can't go through each of these in detail, but we'll do a little bit more than we did two weeks ago, and I hope that you'll get a chance to hear some of the logical arguments for God's existence, some of the traditional philosophical arguments for God's existence. There are many more than we could possibly discuss here on the show today, and there are many different versions of each of the ones we're going to discuss today that we just simply don't have time to deal with today. I would encourage you to take what we talk about and explore more, to look into this more. A great place to start your investigation would be Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. Again, that's Reasonable Faith by William Lane Craig. Reasonable Faith deals with four of the five arguments that we'll mention today, and Craig goes into a lot more detail concerning each of those four arguments. So today we're going to talk about five of the logical and philosophical arguments for God's existence. And I think it's important to realize that critics can't just say that theists and Christians are illogical. There are many great logical arguments for God's existence. I believe that there are many more good arguments for God's existence than for his non-existence. And I feel like the atheist can't just say God doesn't exist until you prove otherwise. They must also prove their theory. And I feel like the arguments are not there for their theory. However, they are there for the Christian and for the theist. Again, we're going to discuss only five, and there are many more of these philosophical evidences or arguments for God's existence. Today we're going to discuss the cosmological argument for God's existence, the teleological argument for God's existence, the moral argument for God's existence, the transcendental argument for God's existence, and the ontological argument for God's existence. And I hope that you'll walk away with a little bit of a better understanding of each of these traditional arguments for the existence of God. So let's start with the powerhouse. Let's start with the cosmological argument for God's existence. And I call it the powerhouse because it's typically known as and referred to as the strongest of the philosophical arguments for God's existence. And it is not just strong logically and philosophically, it is also strong when we look at the science that is pertinent considering this argument. Now, cosmological arguments for God's existence go all the way back to Plato and Aristotle. So these are nothing new to philosophy. Plato described an unmoved mover that was responsible for all other movement, a form of cosmological argument, if you will. In other words, there was a cause for all other effects. And the various 
versions of the cosmological argument all go back to that main issue, that nothing that we see around us is causeless, and that there had to have been originally a cause for all that we see. It seems extremely intuitive, and it seems reasonable that that cause would be greater than everything that it caused. So a traditional version of the cosmological argument, and this is how Wikipedia would describe it. You can check it out more if you want. But a traditional version of the cosmological argument for God's existence would go something like this. Every finite and contingent being has a cause. A causal loop cannot exist. A causal chain cannot be of infinite length. Therefore, a first cause or something that is not an effect must exist. That first cause would be God. And so there is a lot of power in this simple argument. An even simpler version of this argument is what is known as the Kalam cosmological argument. Its most famous proponent today is William Lane Craig, who I mentioned at the beginning of this show. If you do pick up reasonable faith, you'll be able to read a whole lot more about the Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence. The Kalam cosmological argument for God's existence states that everything that begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, therefore the universe had a cause. I think it is a simple argument that is compelling. If the atheist wants to get out of this, they have to disprove either premise one or premise two. In the atheism show, I talked about how it is impossible for them to disprove either premise one or premise two. We know that everything that begins to exist has a cause. To discredit or to disprove that premise, we would have to posit an infinite regression of causes, something that we know is logically impossible. So we know that premise number one is valid, that everything that begins to exist has a cause. We don't see things coming into existence without a cause. And until we see things coming into existence without a cause, premise one is valid. Now, a side note there, you will hear of some atheists trying to talk about how we can get something from nothing. I talked about this even more in the atheism show. And the problem with that is that we don't get something from nothing ever. What these critics are trying to do is trying to redefine nothing. They define nothing as subatomic particles and quantum fields and energy. And then they try to say from that quote unquote nothing, we can get something. Unfortunately, though, and most of them will readily admit that nothing is really something. And so they're not getting something from nothing. They're just getting something from something. And their argument against premise one, that everything that begins to exist has a cause, falls apart. So we know that premise one, that everything that begins to exist has a cause, is valid. Similarly, we know that the universe began to exist. This is both intuitive and empirically verified. We know from the standard theory of physics that the universe began to exist out of nothing a finite time ago. And the critic can't just wiggle out of this. The empirical data, the evidence, overwhelmingly support this position. We know that the universe began to exist out of nothing a finite time ago. Einstein recognized this and tried to wiggle out of it. He came up with the quote-unquote cosmological constant to get out of the implications of his own theory. 
the implication that God must exist or that the universe was created out of nothing a finite time ago. He later called that the biggest mistake of his career and came to acknowledge that the universe was finite and that it began out of nothing a finite time ago. So intuition and empirical data support premise two, that the universe began to exist. So both those being accurate, both premise one and premise two, we know that the conclusion that the universe had a cause is accurate. And we know that the cause of the universe is what we would call God. Many of the features of the beginning of the universe imply a creator, and not just a creator, but the exact creator described in the Bible, an omniscient, omnipresent, all-powerful, all-loving and good God. So we know from a lot of the different features of the beginning of the universe that God exists and that he is, I believe, the God of the Bible. So there are some criticisms against the cosmological argument for God's existence. Some critics, some atheists would say, who made God? You could read a great book on that by Dr. Edgar Andrews titled, Who Made God? You can find it on Amazon. I interviewed Dr. Andrews a few weeks ago here on the show. I hope you got that interview. But he responds to that criticism saying that, first of all, God is the uncaused cause of the universe. So no cause is necessary for an uncaused causer of the universe. Similarly, the laws of causality apply to the natural universe, not necessarily to the supernatural universe. So it's impossible for the atheist to disprove God simply by saying, who made God? Similarly, some critics would try to posit a cyclical model for the universe, saying that the universe has always existed, it did not begin to exist, and it has gone through series of collapses and contractions and expansions, big bangs and big crunches, and that we are only in one of those cycles, and there have been many. Unfortunately for the critic, we know from current measurements by NASA, the WMAP measurements, that we are in a geometrically flat universe that won't permit such expansions and contractions. Another way that critics try to attack the cosmological argument for God's existence is to say that we live in a multiverse where there are an infinity of universes. Unfortunately for the critic, anything outside of this universe lies outside of the domain of science and could not be analyzed by science. And if the critic can't disprove God in another universe, then that God would, by definition, be God over all universes, and the critic is left with an even bigger problem than he had before. So the multiverse theory falls apart as well. Similarly, I've heard crazy theories like examples of uncaused events. I've heard of radioactive decay, for example, being described as an example of an uncaused event. What the critic fails to realize is that won't work. Radioactive decay is spontaneous, but radioactive elements do not begin to exist out of nothing. So again, the skeptic, the critic, is making incredibly fallacious accusations against the theist, and they cannot attack the cosmological argument for God's existence. After the cosmological argument for God's existence, we have the teleological argument for God's existence. The fine-tuning of the universe, and Earth in particular, point to a fine-tuner or designer. We've heard of the anthropic principle, the idea that there are numerous constants and parameters of the universe and Earth, that if they were tweaked the slightest bit, 
life on this earth would not be possible. And we see that those were put in place specifically to allow life, and not just life in general, but human life, to exist right here on this earth. Similarly, we see design throughout the universe. And we know that design always implies a designer. When you see a car, you know it had a designer, a fabricator, that it didn't come from random processes. We know that that car was created by an intelligent designer. If you look at a watch, we know that the watch was created by an intelligent designer. If you look at your computer, there's far too much design in that computer for it to have arisen simply by chance. We know that there was a designer behind it. And then somehow, the critic looks at the universe and the complexity and the design prevalent throughout the universe and prevalent throughout living organisms, and they incorrectly assume that that all arose by chance from Nothing. Impossible. We know that design always implies a designer. And until we see otherwise, the safest assumption is that the design we see all around us is attributable to a designer. Finally, information always requires a programmer. There are scientific laws throughout this universe that govern everything that happens in the universe. And the information that we see there is impossible to ignore. Another example would be the information that's coded within the RNA and DNA of living organisms. The DNA that's in every single cell in your body has all the information for every single part of your body and every function of your body. Incredible information. And there's no natural explanation for how that information could be programmed into your cells or those of any other living organism. The information that we see throughout this universe requires a programmer. The design that we see throughout this universe requires a designer. The fine-tuning of all the different parameters of this universe require a fine-tuner. And that, in a very simple way of describing it, is the teleological argument for God's existence. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to The God Solution here on KDUR. 91.9 and 93.9 FM here in Durango and KDUR.org online. Thanks so much for listening. Today we're talking about a few of the logical and philosophical arguments for God's existence. If you've ever heard the criticism that Christians just check their brain at the door, well, that criticism is checking one's brain at the door. It's not true. Christians and theists have many great arguments to base their belief in God on. We don't only base our belief in logical and philosophical arguments. There are all sorts of types of evidence for God's existence and specifically for the God of the Bible. But these are a few great arguments to consider. So far, we've talked about the cosmological argument for God's existence, the fact that this universe had a supernatural cause. We've also talked about the teleological argument for God's existence, the fact that this universe had a designer. Now, we'll go into the moral argument for God's existence. The moral argument for God's existence is, I believe, compelling. It is what led C.S. Lewis to faith in Christ. It's what led Francis Collins, one of the greatest scientists of our time, to faith in Christ. A basic version of the moral argument for God's existence goes something like this. Objective and binding moral requirements require an all-powerful moral law giver and enforcer. Moral requirements are objective and binding. 
Therefore, an all-powerful moral law giver and enforcer, i.e. God, must exist. We know that morality is objective and binding, and that requires a moral law giver and enforcer, namely God. Natural selection, logic, social contract theory, and other moral theories can provide reasons that we might feel or think morally, but these are not binding or compelling. Someone might say that natural selection led us to have moral tendencies. Well, if they are right in positing an evolutionary process, which I don't think they can, they might be correct at that point in saying that we have moral feelings because of natural selection. But they would not have any reason to say that there are moral obligations. Might would still be right, and natural selection and the survival of the fittest would still rule the day. Similarly, Kant and others would say that logic dictates morality. Well, you might be able to say that logic tells you how you should act. Basically, Kant was using Jesus' golden rule and his logical formulations. Now, even if we can say logic alone tells me how I should act, there's no objectively binding reason that I should act that way, especially if it's in my best interest to do otherwise. Logic might tell you you can't steal, but if stealing will help you survive and there's no accountability that you have to be accountable to, well then go ahead and steal. But we all know that's wrong. See, the fact that we know these moral arguments are binding, the fact that we know that these moral requirements are necessary and that we will give an account, all that implies that we know that there is a moral lawgiver, namely God. Next, we have the transcendental argument for God's existence. Transcendental arguments for God's existence assert that there are objectively true, universally binding laws of reality that require a lawgiver, similar to the moral argument for God's existence I just described. And that could even be said to fit into this transcendental genre of arguments for God's existence. Matt Slick of Karm describes it this way. The transcendental argument for God's existence is, quote, an attempt to demonstrate the existence of God using logical absolutes. The oversimplified argument goes as follows. Logical absolutes exist. Logical absolutes are conceptual by nature, are not dependent on space-time, physical properties, or human nature. They are not the product of the physical universe, space-time, and matter. Because if the physical universe were to disappear, logical absolutes would still be true. Logical absolutes are not the product of human minds, because human minds are different, not absolute. But since logical absolutes are always true everywhere and not dependent upon human minds, it must be an absolute transcendent mind that is authoring them. This mind is called God. Furthermore, if there are only two options to account for something, i.e. God and no God, and one of them is negated, then by default the other position is validated. Therefore, part of the argument is that the atheist position cannot account for the existence of logical absolutes from its worldview. You can read more about that in his detailed description of that at karm.org slash transcendental dash argument. Again, that's karm.org slash transcendental dash argument. This argument could be made for mathematical absolutes, scientific laws, and even for moral obligations as described previously. The transcendental arguments for God's existence aren't necessarily the most compelling, 
but they do seem to corroborate God's existence over his non-existence. I recently mentioned these in a presentation to an atheist class, and there are a lot of people that opposed my use of the transcendental argument for God's existence. Unfortunately for them, though, atheists assert that these laws are non-contingent and necessary. If that is their assertion, and it is, they must show why anything in a solely natural universe is non-contingent and metaphysically, logically, causally, or factually necessary. Therefore, I believe it is more reasonable to believe that these absolute and binding aspects of reality are contingent upon the existence of an absolute non-contingent metaphysically necessary being, namely God. Christians believe that these laws derive from God's very nature. You might not think that the transcendental arguments for God's existence are the strongest, but I do think that they are yet one more argument to consider, and I think they favor the theist much more than the atheist. Finally, our fifth genre of argument for God's existence, and again, there are many more. We can only discuss five today, though. The ontological argument for God's existence. The ontological arguments for God's existence seem peculiar, seem weird, seem a little fishy. They do seem logically compelling in some ways, but it seems like there's something going on that isn't quite right. But at the same time, I think that they hit the nail on the head when it comes to the reality that most people do recognize just from their own minds that God must exist. And that's been the case for humanity throughout the ages. So Craig describes Anselm's version of it this way in Reasonable Faith. God is the greatest conceivable being. It is greater to exist in reality than just in the mind. If God existed only in the mind, then something greater than him could be conceived his existing not only in the mind, but in reality as well. But God is the greatest conceivable being. Hence, he must exist not only in the mind, but in reality as well. Plantinga would call belief in God a properly basic belief. And if you listened to the show a few weeks ago on atheism, you'll remember that I quoted Descartes who said, but as regards God, if I were not overwhelmed by philosophical prejudices, and if the images of things perceived by the senses did not besiege my thought on every side, I would certainly acknowledge him sooner and more easily than anything else. For what is more manifest than the fact that the supreme being exists, or that God, to whose essence alone existence belongs, exists? What these people are saying is that if you can know anything at all, it's that God exists. An Ipsos Social Research Institute poll last year found that only 17% of the world's population don't believe in God. It seems true that people naturally believe that God must exist. So ontological arguments for God's existence seem a bit fishy, but we shouldn't be quick to ignore the reality that most people believe God exists. And I would just put the ball back in your court and say, if you consider yourself an unbeliever, I would ask you to evaluate what you truly believe in the core of your being. Do you truly believe in the core of your being that God does not exist? If you say yes, I would challenge you and say, I doubt it. I think that when you look around the world and you look at nature, especially living in a beautiful place like Durango, you see God's invisible attributes everywhere you look. The Bible tells us that we see God's invisible attributes in nature. And I believe that's the case. And I believe that people naturally, until they're 
affected by others' biases, believe that God exists. So finally, as we observe all these arguments, we must remember that the atheist relies on the non-existence of evidence to corroborate the non-existence of God. That's just an argument from ignorance, which is exactly what they criticize theists of making, which is invalid because I believe Christians and theists have great evidence for belief in God. These are just an argument from ignorance and they don't work for the atheist. Their arguments against theism are definitely problematic to say the least. The argument of pain and suffering is one that the atheist must deal with. The atheist has to describe the existence of evil as much as the Christian does. And so does the proponent of every worldview. And I don't think that those are unanswerable for the theist. In fact, I think we have great, great answers for why pain, suffering, and evil exist and an even greater answer for how we can cope with those things. Similarly, the critic would say, what about Christian evils? Like I said previously, we would never judge a philosophy by its abuse. Ravi Zacharias discusses that in detail. And it's an important thing to note that many atheists have perpetrated even greater evils than any so-called Christian in history. The arguments that the atheist uses against theism are not just problematic. I think they are somewhat immature. And I think that the best arguments lie on the side of theism and Christianity. That being said, the Christian doesn't base her faith solely on logical arguments, but rather considers a variety of evidences ranging from logic to scientific to historical to biblical prophecy, for example, to experiential and even others. Today, we discussed the cosmological argument for God's existence, the teleological argument for God's existence, the moral argument for God's existence, the transcendental argument for God's existence, and the ontological argument for God's existence. I think that these are all worth considering when evaluating the evidence for faith, and I would encourage you to go even further than these. Do consider the historical evidence for Christianity. Do consider the scientific evidence that points us to a creator. Do consider the biblical evidence Prophecy is just one type of biblical evidence that I think would convince anyone of the accuracy of the scriptures. Do consider experiential evidences of believers that you might know. Look at all these different types of evidences and realize that just like I always say, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And I believe that with everything in me. See, when God says in the book of Jeremiah that if you search for me with all your heart, you'll find me, I believe he's making you a promise. And he will come through. And as you investigate the evidence, you'll find that he is true. I'm not talking about an ambiguous entity, but a God who loves you more than anything in the world and who desires to be in a personal relationship with you. See, the Bible says that God has loved you with an everlasting love. But your sin and selfishness and my sin and selfishness separate us from this perfect God. He came and he lived a life among us. He lived a perfect life and died a death that we deserved to pay for all our sins. So that anyone who puts their trust and faith in him could be guaranteed an eternal life with him in heaven and an abundant life with him here on this planet. You could begin that relationship with Christ today by faith, simply through prayer, by saying, Jesus, I believe in you. Come into my life. Forgive my sins. Make me the kind of person that you want me to be.
Thanks so much for listening this morning. I hope some of these philosophical arguments for God's existence were encouraging to you. I would also encourage you to visit New Hope this morning. They meet at the Storyteller Durango 9 Theater at 10 a.m., so give them a shot. Also, do not come to Connect this week as we won't be having Connect. It is finals week, so we won't be meeting this week. Get all of our previous shows at godsolutionshow.com and please let us know what you think. We appreciate your comments and questions. Tune in next week for more on the end of the world. As you know, the Mayan calendar ends the week after next. So next week, we'll be talking a little bit more about the end of the world on this show. And I'm pretty hopeful that it won't be our last show on the air. Remember, an open mind, honest heart, humble disposition, and diligent search always lead to Jesus. And once again, before we get off the air, I want to implore you and beg you to investigate the evidence rather than simply saying no to belief in Christ based on assumptions and hearsay. Please investigate the philosophical arguments for God's existence and investigate all the other many types of evidence for God's existence and the reliability of the Christian faith. Thank you so much for listening. Have a great Sunday.